listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the ACB Advocacy Update. I am your host, Clark Rockfall, and I am the Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for the American Council of the Blind. If you'd like to learn more about ACB, please visit our website at acb.org. And as always, thanks to everyone who is listening to this via your favorite podcast player, as well as those streaming over ACB radio. On this podcast, we're going to talk about an issue that is uh, one familiar to many of our listeners and certainly related to podcasts that we've done previously. We're talking about voting. Uh, And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Clark, didn't you just have President Dan Spoon and Pat Sheehan and Connie Sims on to talk about ACB's uh, voting that's going to be done this year? Yes, we did. And you can still find that podcast from a few weeks ago. But this one is about how we vote in our democracy uh, and how we vote in elections, whether that's in person at the polls or remote absentee balloting that we can do from, from home or wherever. And we have three great guests joining us here today to talk about what's been happening in voting. And I'd like to ask them each to introduce themselves. First, I'll begin with Diane Golden. Diane, how are you doing today? I'm just fine, Clark. Thank you. And Diane, could you share a bit of your background when it comes to uh, work in voting accessibility? Sure. Um, I got involved in voting work over 20 years ago when HAVA first passed, um, and I was the director of an assistive technology program at the time um, and ended up getting really involved in the state's review of voting, accessible voting equipment. Um, and from there, continued to work um, <clears throat> with accessible voting systems on some pilot projects that the Election Assistance Commission funded. Um, and then I tried to retire and I've been an abysmal failure at that. But Um, I was appointed to the Technical Guidelines Development Committee, um, which is one of the advisory committees under the Help America Vote Act. Um, And the Technical Guidelines Development Committee is responsible for developing the voting system standards. Um, So I've been on the Technical Guidelines Development Committee for over 10 years now and, and continuing to work my with voting really really focused on accessible voting machines themselves that's great thanks diane and and certainly those accessible voting machines are something that our members are very familiar with um so is it the the technical guidelines committee at the eac that sets the guidelines and standards for uh accessible ballot marking devices correct um the uh it's called the TGDC, obviously, Technical Guidelines Development Committee, and that group develops the standards that all voting systems are tested to by uh, national testing labs, and those standards include you know, security standards, general durability standards, all kinds of machine standards, and they include a set of accessibility standards um, with the goal of making sure those ballot marking devices provide fully accessible ballot marking, verification, and casting um, so that people with disabilities can vote privately and independently, which is what HAVA um, is supposed to ensure. Yes. And uh, Diane, just to be clear, is this only for in-person voting? Correct. The standards, they're called the Voluntary uh, Voting System Guidelines, VVSG, and those uh, voting system standards only apply to machines that are used in polling places for in-person voting. Um, at this point in time, there, the Technical Guidelines Development Committee has not developed any standards and the uh, VVSG does not include any standards that apply directly to remote voting, whether that's remote ballot marking devices or vote by mail per se or any of those other not in-person voting options. That is an interesting point, and I think we will dive deeper into that in a bit. So, Diane, thank you for joining us. Next, I'd like to turn to uh, Maggie Hart. Uh, Maggie, good morning or good afternoon, depending on whatever somebody's listening to this. Yes, hello. Hi, everybody. Uh, My name is Maggie Hart. I am counsel with the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, uh, where my work focuses on disability justice um, broadly. But over the last 
two years, uh, especially with, you know, the big presidential election um, and now the various uh, pieces of legislation related to voting and voting access that are moving all over the country at the state level and um, HR1 and S1 at the federal level, a large part of my work has focused on voting accessibility. And Maggie, I know a lot of our members, whether they've attended the ACB leadership conference in the past few years, as well as folks who have listened to our podcast, and certainly folks in West Virginia, Virginia, and New York are familiar with your work. Um, but what are what are some of the areas within voting um, that you've been active over the past few years, and what sort of progress have you seen? Sure. So my my work um, has been, as you mentioned, you know, state level advocacy um, in West Virginia. Um, litigation in Virginia um, and um, participating in, you know, filing a complaint with the Federal Department of Justice uh, about voting access in New York. Um, The focus of all of that has really been on accessible absentee voting. So making sure that states recognize, you know, that um, voters with disabilities have the right to equal access to their accessible, to their, excuse me, um, absentee voting process. Um, I have seen progress in all three of those locations. Um, in West Virginia, we were able to get legislation passed. Um, in Virginia, you know, for the November election, they put a remote access ballot marking device in place that allowed um, electronic delivery and marking of the ballot. Um, and in New York, improvements were made, let's put it that way. Um, I think there's still work to do. Uh, in in Virginia and New York, um, but across the country, um, in in issue, you know states I've been involved in, and in states where um, ACB affiliates and and the protection and advocacy organizations um, have you know really taken a big part of the advocacy too. There's been a lot of progress towards um, allowing voters with disabilities to receive, mark their ballots um, electronically. Um, still. Still, there's still work to be done to make it fully accessible system with electronic return. Um, but I think we're going to get into some of the work we have to do during this podcast. But I do think it's really important because we've been moving at lightning speed around voting with everything that's been going on the last two years um, to take a moment and reflect on the fact that there's been a lot of work done and, all, and some progress made. Thanks, Maggie. And one of the things that I think is interesting about the work that ACB has done, and, and certainly in the states where we've been able to partner with the Washington Lawyers Committee, uh, West Virginia legislation was passed. In Virginia, there's a, a pending lawsuit. And in New York, there was a uh, disability rights section complaint filed with the Department of Justice. Uh, so it's it's not like we're looking at this as a, a one-size-fits-all solution. There, there are many advocacy tools in the toolbox. And when when necessary or available, we're, we're trying to take full advantage of uh, strategies and tactics to move, you know, move the needle and move the ball forward. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's right. And I think, you know, there's been uh, even a combination of approaches in certain jurisdictions. So in addition to litigation in Virginia, there is a bill going mm-hmm. through there. Um, hopefully, if it has not been signed, hopefully it will be signed any moment. Um, and in New York, in addition to the DOJ complaint, there is litigation going on. Um, so definitely a multi-pronged approach. Yes, and a, a big part of those approaches at the state level are the protection and advocacy organizations in uh, all of the states, as well as territories, 57 in total. I've been paying attention, Erica. Uh, we're joined by Erica Hudson from National Disability Rights Network. Hello, Erica. Hi, Clark. Yes, you nailed it. That was excellent. Thank you so much for letting me join this morning with y'all three. I really appreciate it. And Erica, what is your role at uh, National Disability Rights Network or NDRN? Yeah, so I work on the public policy team at NDRN, which is the national membership organization for the federally mandated protection advocacy systems or PNAs that serve individuals' disabilities. And I am really fortunate to work on our voting team at NDRN. So I work with my colleagues and you all uh, specifically on public policy on the federal level. So I primary focus on legislation that's moving in Congress and not so much on the legislation that's moving in the states. 
um, as other awesome folks on our team do that. But I'm really uh, fortunate to work with you all and Congress to make sure that voters with disabilities are being included in these really important pieces of federal voting legislations that have been moving over the past two years and have been uh, quite actively discussed. Great. All right. Well, let, let's jump right in. So as as Maggie mentioned, there's been a lot happening over the past two years. And Diane, I guess I'll start with you. So specific to the, the 2020 elections, um, what sort of bright spots have you noticed in voting accessibility? Uh, were there any were there any significant changes made in the 2020 elections that enhanced voter access? Well, obviously, I, I think everybody probably um, agrees and understands that given the pandemic, um, a lot of voting shifted from in-person to something remote and, you know, all kinds of different iterations of not in-person. It's almost like I want to call it not in-person voting because there's so many options uh, for that. Um, so obviously, there was a large shift from the typical in-person voting to all kinds of other options. And um, the good news is some of those options were very accessible (laughs) and some were kind of accessible and others were probably terribly inaccessible. Um, But at least people started thinking about those kinds of voting um, mechanisms rather than focusing everything on one machine. And I will give you my bias right now, one of the worst parts of Hop of the Help America, Help America Vote Act is that crazy requirement for one accessible voting machine per polling place that has, and it does say at least, that has turned into there is a segregated machine in the corner just for people with disabilities in so many instances. And I, I realize that was probably no one's intent when uh, HAVA was passed, but that's how it's ended up playing out, you know. 25 years later. So in the the 2020 election, all of this move to remote voting, um, I think opened a lot of people's eyes to um, the access problems with traditional vote by mail, which is paper-based. And let's face it, A, paper is inaccessible. B, having to mail something is pretty darn inaccessible. Um, And, you know, if that's your only option, getting a paper ballot mailed to you and hand marking it and mailing it back there are so many access problems uh, there that you know need to be addressed if if you want something other than in-person vote, voting to be accessible. So as Maggie pointed out, there um, a lot of folks started raising questions when you know states moved to more and more quote unquote non-in-person voting options because of the uh, pandemic and social distancing requirements, et cetera. Um, so you know there were individual jurisdictions that uh, have what are called remote ballot marking systems, um, some of which allow an electronic return of ballots, some that don't. But anyway, regardless, there at least was, a, in my mind, a lot of move, movement forward um, in looking at and people becoming familiar with remote voting and what it's going to take to make remote voting fully accessible for people with disabilities. Thanks, Diane. And, and Erica, uh, do you agree with Diane about the one at least one accessible ballot marking device provision of the Help America Vote Act? I mean, shouldn't we be thankful that there's at least one? Oh, I, I pause because we, I mean, no, to be honest, is my short answer to that. I just know from personal experience. I remember when I first had the opportunity to vote when I was 18, I went to my polling place, didn't really know what was going on, didn't know what was supposed to be at the polling place. And they handed me a paper ballot, which I couldn't see. And I asked if there was any type of accessible equipment. And at this time, I had no idea that even ballot marking devices were required by federal law to be at polling places. And I remember I had to ask for help to vote because there was no other way for me to vote uh, on election day that day. Uh, And I remember I was really deterred from wanting to vote again. I was like, well, I couldn't see anything. Why would I want to like I felt very defeated. I remember that first time I voted and then here come full circle goodness, I don't know how many years later, uh, where I had the opportunity to join NDRN and really learned what is required by federal law. And now I go to polling places and I demand that I get the accessible voting machine. And Diane is exactly right. It's in the corner. It's in a dusty part of the polling. I mean, which is fine. I mean, dust is all good, right? But it's genuinely in the corner 
No one is there. Every time I've gone to the polling place, the poll workers were very kind, but they didn't know how to set it up because it wasn't set up. They didn't know how to use it. So I remember my partner and I went at the same time to the polling place. He was able to vote within a minute. It took me about 20, uh, which by all means is much less than what a lot of folks have to stand in line for, unfortunately, as lines go so long. Uh, But again, it, it is exactly what Diane said, that because there's only one accessible voting machine at polling places. A lot of times poll workers aren't trained how to use them. They're not even turned on. A lot of the times they don't work. Uh, And I personally, you know, again, I had the opportunity to serve as a poll worker in this last election. um, And it was the same thing. And I was the poll worker who said, hey, we need to set up this accessible voting machine. And was told to my face that, no, it's okay. No one uses that machine. So I, um, that was an interesting conversation to have. And we were fortunately able to set it up and have it on and all that good jazz. But it's exactly what Diane said. And I think because of that, that's where the problems lie. And more people need to use the ballot marking devices. And there needs to be more at every single polling place because everyone can use them, not just voters with disabilities. So um, yeah, that's how I feel about only (laughs) having one ballot marking device at polling places. And and Erica, you touched on an interesting point that everyone should be able to use them. What's wrong with only having voters with disabilities using the accessible ballot marking device? Yeah. I mean, and Diane said it, right? It's segregating voters with disabilities from the rest of the voters. I know I have been told time and time again, going to my polling place now that I know the poll workers, who again, are lovely, but they tell me, oh, I remember you because you vote from the accessible voting machine and you're the only one that votes on that. So we always remember to print off the receipt to make sure it gets counted, which again, grateful that it's being counted, but that's a problem. They shouldn't know that I am the singular voter who votes on the accessible voting equipment. And I think that's fair across the board, across the country, uh, because Again, not only can it prevent people from having a private independent vote, especially if the machine's not on, if it's not working, and then they need help filling out their ballot, but also it's very evident who is using that machine. And I think that's a problem and it shouldn't be that way, right? We should all be having that private independent vote no matter what. And I think with only having one accessible machine, if that at polling places causes a lot of problems. Yeah, so much for the the secret ballot if you're the only vote and they, they, they know your face, they know your name right? Uh, and they have yeah. your, yeah, the receipt because yeah. your accessible ballot marking device prints out a, a receipt, not a ballot that looks like everyone else's ballot. Exactly. Right. Uh, Maggie, I'd like to bring you into this conversation. So Diane <laughs> touched on, um, paper and the inaccessibility of paper. So when we have an accessible ballot marking device in the polling location, which is great, uh, we're able to vote accessibly. Uh, but what about paper? Why, why is paper or a paper ballot so inherently inaccessible? Sure. Um, well, for several reasons. <clears throat> I mean, if you know anybody with a print disability is unable to access the, the paper ballot, whether it's reading the information on it, um, knowing where to mark it, being able to to verify it. Um, and then there were obstacles that Diane touched on too, which is the printing, making sure it's in the correct envelope, making sure the envelope's signed in the right place, getting to a place to return it, whether that's um, the mailbox or having to drive it to a polling place um, and the lack of you know, public transportation options in a lot of places. So really the, in, the entire process. Um, and then if you require assistance, it's the same issue that we were just talking about with only having one accessible unit in a polling place, is that somebody then knows how you voted. And so there isn't that private and independent vote um, that is the backbone of our democracy. Um, and, and, you know, some people are able to find somebody they trust and some some people even right kind of form a, a ritual with somebody where they, they vote with that person. And that's fine if that's what you want. But if you are in a position where you don't have somebody like that in your life, then you're really opening up what should be a a private and independent process um, up to somebody else. And and that's not fair and it's not equal. Yeah, I I was just having uh, visions, flashes, nightmares, whatever you want to call them of, you know, folks in my family don't always see eye to eye when it comes to politics and elections and voting. Um, so I, I'm just thinking if I had to rely on you know, family members who I love, um, would would my vote be recorded the way I want it to be vote, you know, recorded 
in cast. Right, you know? right. And there's that question in the moment. There's also the uh, maybe impact on that relationship or, you know, people have the you have the right to discuss politics or not discuss politics with your family as you choose. And um, if if it starts kind of opening up through the actual act of voting, then, you know, who knows what conversations you'll get into down the line that you, you may just not want to. Um, and everybody should have the right to make those choices. Right. And there's always the, the specter of undue influence on uh when receiving assistance to cast a ballot as well, right? One of our members shared a story of as he was receiving assistance at the polling location to fill out his ballot, the poll worker assisting him, it very loudly blurted out, you want to vote how on this question? And it's, you know, it's it's a, a very awkward situation to be put in um, when trying to complete your ballot and have your own views and opinions expressed. Very um, awkward. And that goes yeah. back to, you know, uh, uh, I think uh, a problem that we all know and recognize, uh, and which is that poll workers and volunteers uh, need continual training around accessibility and privacy. For sure. And I mean, we got started here talking about the, the areas of, you know, the green shoots and areas of positive changes that we've seen over the past year, uh, none more so than the five states that are now allowing or did in the, the 2020 fall election, allow voters with disabilities to receive, mark, and return their ballots electronically. So a big round of applause for Maine, Massachusetts, Delaware, North Carolina, and West Virginia. Um, Diane, going back to you, what, are, what should be our main takeaways from, from this innovation? Having states that are allowing voters with disabilities not only to receive an absentee ballot electronically, but use their own assistive technology to mark their ballot and then uh, return it to their election officials so it can be printed and counted. I, I'm 100% with you. Kudos to those states for um, being willing to uh, fend off the ire of the security um, zealots who, uh, you know, uh, even the concept of a, a digital ballot being left in digital form is some sort of, of you know, um, yeah, a sacrilegious idea. Um, yeah, those those states and that process that uh, allows, and I'm going to talk in generalities, allows the ballot to remain in digital form throughout the time that the voter interacts with it. Now, on the back end at the election office, those are converted into hard copy, typically. Uh, you know, there is a paper backup. There, there is not, you know, uh, it, it is not as if there, there is no audit paper trail. There is. It's just that what the voter is asked to interact with, especially for voters with disabilities and overseas military voters, is a, is, can be left in digital form for accessibility purposes. And that literally makes all the difference in the world. I, you know, I've said it a hundred times. Digital is, is accessible. I can make digital accessible in just all kinds of ways. Um, paper is not. I mean, to make paper accessible, you got to convert it into something digital, quite frankly. Um, I, I was laughing at your story. My story when I first got involved in voting was literally when the auto mark was first developed, the very first ballot marking device. Prior to that, it had been all DREs, direct um, uh, recording electronic systems where there was a digital ballot. And when somebody explained the ballot marking device for me the first time, I, I am not kidding you. I looked at them and said, why would anyone want to do that, go through all of that trouble of making a digital interface to just print something at the end that nullifies the whole accessibility you know, uh, interface? So, yeah, I mean, those folks who have who have piloted this, shown it works now. I'm, I'm going to tell you, Clark, I'm not a security expert. Um, I, you know, I know the concerns of security folks about digital information being susceptible to security leaks, um, but I know accessibility and for security people to keep, for lack of a better word, patting us on the head and saying, oh, we can make paper accessible. I, I mean, we haven't yet. 
And I'm not, I have no idea how you do that for remote voting. I just have no idea how you make that fully accessible. So, uh, you know, something's got to give in this conflict. We've got to come to some kind of agreement and compromise that says we are making this as secure as we possibly can, but we can't deny people with disabilities the right to vote privately and independently just because in, in some harebrained scheme, there might be a security issue. Um, you know, we've, there just has to be a way we can move forward with um, allowing the, the ballot to stay in digital form and be accessible. And Erica, anything you'd like to add from the, the NDRN perspective on uh, the how states are expanding access to accessible absentee voting, um, especially with a nod to those five states allowing voters with disabilities to receive, mark, and return their ballots electronically? I think the only thing I would add to what Diane said, too, is just to thank the advocates who pushed for this to happen. There's no doubt in my mind that this was a collaborative effort to ensure access for everyone. And it speaks volumes to what for folks are doing on the ground and in the states to make sure that everyone has the same right as everyone else to cast a private and independent vote. Uh, and it's really exciting. And I'm hopeful that it will go across the United States. But I think Diane's right on her on what she said, everything that's kind of in our path, if you will, to get there. But that's why these types of conversations and the work that folks are doing on the ground is so tremendously important. Um, so that, I think that would be what I would add to what Diane said there. Thank you. And Maggie, despite these innovations, um, we still have barriers that people with disabilities are encountering uh, when either going in person to the polls or voting absentee. There was a recent report from Rutgers University and the Election Assistance Commission, or EAC, um, that was a, a survey of voters from 2020. We were fortunate to have the EAC and, the, and Doug and Lisa from Rutgers University share some of those findings with our members at our DC Leadership Conference. Um, but I was curious if you or any of the other panelists um, would like to discuss some of those highlights, mainly, you know, A, voters with disabilities are still encountering barriers, and B, voters with visual impairments are encountering more barriers than voters with other disabilities. Yep, that's right. And the recent study um, unfortunately showed that the barriers uh, that have always been there are still there. I mean, it showed um, an increase in participation overall, which is great. But, you know, all of the barriers that have always existed, right? So there's there's problems with the absentee voting process, there's problems with curbside voting, there's this problem of only having one uh, accessible unit in the polling place. Um, that is all still happening. Um, and of course, with the pandemic, um, the accessible barriers to absentee voting um, were highlighted because people needed to, to, to vote remotely. Um, one thing I wanted to you know, highlight about something Diane just said actually is this this um, security idea and the fact that paper ballots can never be made accessible. I think you know Diane is is spot on about that. And with the um, electronic ballots, you know, we need them to be equally secure to to in person voting and and paper ballots. Um, we need them to provide equal access for voters with disabilities. Um, And I think that is the key moving forward. Maggie, that's a great point. And I think through this conversation and through the the Rutgers EAC study, we are not just finding out, but basically confirming that in-person polling is not 100% accessible 100% of the time. Um, absentee voting is not 100% accessible 100% of the time. And it, frankly, that's that's life, right? We know accessibility is a journey, um, but so is security. Even paper ballots and in-person polling, there are security vulnerabilities. We, As we try to expand accessibility and as election workers try to expand accessibility, they're also working to minimize security vulnerabilities. And we wouldn't have it any other way, right? We, we want to make sure that our votes are legitimate and they count. Um, but setting a standard of 100% security 100% of the time 
only for absentee voting does not provide equal access. Um, I'm curious if folks have any any thoughts, agreement, disagreement on what I just said there. This is Maggie. Oh, go ahead, Diane. I was just going to say you're absolutely correct. Both are a continuum. And, you know, uh, being a part of the Technical Guidelines Development Committee and setting accessibility standards, even if a system meets all of those standards, that does not mean someone who is deafblind can walk into a polling place and find refreshable Braille on their vote on the accessible voting system. You know, it, I, I mean, we acknowledge right up front, if you meet the accessibility standards of, of the VVSG 2.0, that machine is deemed accessible. Does it mean it's accessible for every person with every type and degree of disability? No. If you require refreshable Braille, that machine is not going to do it for you. You know, you're going to have to, we're going to have to do an alternative. And the alternative would be a digital ballot that that person can interact with, with their own computer and their own refreshable Braille display. Um, So, you know, we acknowledge that accessibility is a continuum and you have to, you know, set a a benchmark. And this is what, you know, it's the same thing with architectural access standards. The required slope of a ramp is, means that that ramp is accessible. Does that mean every person is going to be able to manipulate their chair up that kind of slope? Some may not. You know, they don't have the upper arm strength to do that. They are someone who should be in a power chair and is not perhaps, you know, you just, that's the the essence of standards. You identify, you know, this is the minimum requirement. Somehow in security, (laughs) their minimum standards are literally have, have been and continue to be paper is it. It's the only option and it's voter verified paper. And, you know, that puts us in a corner of great. Then you're telling us, you're going to sacrifice accessibility for security. Thank you so much. And even with the, sorry, Maggie, was there anything that you wanted to add? No, I think Diane covered it. Great. And it, even with the gains that we've had here in uh, 2020, uh, again, we see the the data coming from the Election Assistance Commission and the, uh, along with Rutgers University. Um, so we, we've been setting the table here. We've talked about how voting has been made accessible. Um, what the gains have been, what the barriers have been for in-person, the evolution of remote absentee voting, and how some states are making that more accessible than others, and the the great advocacy work that's been done um, leading to those innovations. Um, But then we have the the For the People Act, um, introduced, reintroduced here in the 117th Congress, H.R. 1 and S. 1. Um, And Diane, I'll I'll begin with you, uh, because you are able to explain it so well. Um, these bills have a durable paper ballot mandate. What what does that mean? Well, it's exactly as I described. Unfortunately, um, it is a uh, requirement for every voting uh, system, and this is not limited to in-person voting. This covers all voting, so that's going to be not in-person, absentee, remote. Um, basically it requires a durable voter verified paper ballot as the ballot of record that is the official one that's counted. So it is mandating paper in all voting systems for all voters, um, which again, uh, creates extensive challenges for in-person voting because that means the ballot marking device, um, which most ballot marking devices AKA the name ballot marking device do a decent job of providing a digital interface with access features so that someone can accessibly mark and print the paper ballot. But once the ballot's printed, if you're visually impaired and you need to, and you need to verify the print on the paper, if you have um, high level, uh, you know, quadriplegia and you cannot handle the paper ballot, you, that ballot content has to be converted back into digital, back into some accessible form for you to verify the printed voted paper ballot. And then in most places, you have to cast it by picking it up with your hands and walking over to a precinct counter to a ballot box someplace and actually feeding it into the machine there, the, the official casting. So all of those steps are inaccessible with paper and making them accessible is possible it's very complex. It's very expensive. And 99.9% of the ballot marking devices that are currently used across the country don't do that. So that's the, the challenge. In-person voting, it's 
impossible to make paper accessible, very, very challenging, expensive, and complex. For remote voting, which this is going to require the same durable paper ballot, um, it, uh, I, I, I'm an assistive tech person for 40-some years. I, I don't know how you make it fully accessible. You can deliver a digital ballot to someone remotely, and they can mark it. But once they print it at home, A, they have to have a printer, which a lot of people don't. B, then you're going to have to have an OCR scanner or something that lets you scan the text back in so that you can verify what you just printed. Okay, very few people are going to have that. And then you have all the, the physical motor handling of the paper ballot that, you know, there, there is no such machine. You know, nobody markets an assistive technology device called a, a mechanical paper ballot handling machine. Um, I'm old enough to have remembered page turners for books back when schools used books instead of digital things. And there actually was a machine called a page turner that you could buy to try to make books accessible to kids who had motor limitations. And let me tell you, those things broke every day. <laughs> Didn't ever work. There's a reason paper handling, mechanical paper handling is nobody's favorite thing. Um, so yeah, um, S1 and H1 have this extraordinarily broad paper mandate uh, for all voting, all ballots that is just going to decimate accessibility. And Erica, is that your understanding of the durable paper ballot mandate in HR1 and S1 as well? Yeah, Diane was spot on. And I think that's why we're in a very unique situation because S1 and HR1 has some really incredible, important provisions in it that also positively impact voters with disabilities. There's a whole section of the bill that is strictly on access to voting for individual disabilities. And the bill itself has many other incredibly important uh, provisions that will hopefully help everyone. Uh, but it, it is very concerning um, that we see this paper ballot mandate that would unfortunately disenfranchise many voters with disabilities who perhaps cannot uh, either see the paper ballot or for various print disabilities um, have limited dexterity. Um, so that's something that we need to be mindful of and continue the conversations with our policymakers to see if we can figure out the best solution moving forward um, on how to make it accessible for everyone. Um, so that's definitely the goal here. And Erica, another section of the, the bill uh, located in the, the rules of construction when talking about absentee voting would, is it, is it my understanding that that section would prohibit the electronic return of an absentee ballot? Yes, that is uh, that is correct. So unfortunately, what we see in several states then across the country that you mentioned earlier today, Clark, right, they would have to rework their voting systems uh, in regards to absentee, which is something that we don't want to see, right? We want to make sure that folks in these states who have worked so hard to get equal access can still continue to do that. Uh, but as of right now, as the bill is written, and that would be the case. And would that only apply to voters with disabilities or would that apply to all voters? So it, and that's a very good, that's a really interesting question. And it definitely depends on I think who we talk to. And I know there are voters with disabilities are just some of the voters, right? Who prefer the electronic interface of voting voters overseas, whether folks living abroad um, who of course still have the right to vote in America's election or even military, military uh, voters who wanting to vote, they currently vote electronically. Right. So our understanding is that this, this specific bill would not impact those voting overseas, and it will mostly vote, impact those who are voting here in the United States. Uh, but I've learned so far that given how big this bill is, it's over 800 pages, um, there are some discrepancies, I think, which is fair to say, uh, regarding that, if it would only impact voters with disabilities um, or also overseas voters. Is that your understanding too, Clark? Or uh, Yes. And I, I yeah. want to see if that's... Uh, Maggie, do you have the same understanding, misunderstanding, or confusion on, on whether the electronic return of the ballot, uh, not allowing the electronic return of an absentee ballot would apply only to voters with disabilities or if it would apply to all voters? So I think uh, I think we share a confusion around this issue. You know, it's interesting, this bill um, is, is, is huge, like Erica mentioned, and clearly a lot of people put a lot of thought into it. At the same time, I think um, you know the the 
provision that you're talking about now about electronic return may violate some of the the rights to, of overseas voters in the um, in UOCAVA, the uh, Overseas Uniformed uh, Citizens Absentee Voting Act, uh, as well as right provisions of the ADA, which are already in place that require equal access for voters with disabilities. And this paper ballot mandate, uh, I think, violates that. Um, and so I think we have a group of informed, engaged advocates talking on this podcast who are not certain. Um, and that tells me that the legislators are probably not certain either. And so I think one of the things that we have to do is educate them, educate them about what the ADA already requires, what voters, UOCAVA um, voters already have in place, what these these states already have in place and it's working and it's been secure um, and, and educate them about what it is that voters with disabilities need and are entitled to when it comes to voting. That's a great point, Maggie. And it- 26 states do allow some voters, whether it's um, military, overseas citizens, or voters with disabilities, to uh, return their ballot electronically. And again, five states are allowing all voters with disabilities to do that, which is which is phenomenal. And here we have this uncertainty of how how this this bill, if passed in its current form, will impact accessibility, not only for voters with disabilities, uh, but also those those UACAVA voters. Um, Erica, NDRN is is very active. Um, and, and as you said, your focus has mainly been on the, the federal level. Um, could you share with us some of the work that you've been doing to try to try to speak with members of Congress and resolve some of these issues as well as uh, you know, you stated before that there are good provisions for voters with disabilities. Um, can you d- share some of those? Yeah, absolutely. And as Maggie mentioned, there are folks that are working incredibly hard on this as the goal is to eliminate voter suppression in America, which unfortunately is alive and well in the United States, even well into the 21st century. And this bill wants to make sure that it gives equal access to everyone in the United States and any voter in the United States. Uh, And that's really important um, and something that we should all want to be looking at and wanting to make sure that it is as good as possible. This could make a lot of changes. So we've ha- been fortunate to work with you all on this call, along with folks uh, in Congress, uh, their incredible staff who's working so hard on this to just keep in mind what would happen specifically on the paper ballot mandate. As I think, unfortunately, people with disabilities, voters with disabilities are often overlooked and forgotten. And I think that's fair to say in this situation, most folks don't blink an eye when it when they're told yeah, we're going to vote on paper ballots. Most people think that's fair because that's how most people vote already, right? So people aren't necessarily informed on what the negative impacts on this could be are. And we have learned that's the case with a lot of folks. Um, And we are trying to have these conversations with folks to let them know that it's a problem and that we need to figure out what the best path moving forward is. Unfortunately, as Diane mentioned, paper ballots are the way folks want to vote for security reasons. And as this time, we don't have a fully accessible system that is um, available to folks. Um, and voters with disabilities want their vote as secure as everyone else, right? There's no question there. So we're trying to figure out what compromises in the legislation could be to ensure that voters with disabilities aren't disenfranchised. So we're speaking with both folks on the House and on the Senate as the bill is in both chambers to see what these solutions can be. And I think we are excited, thanks to the advocacy that Diane and Clark, you and Maggie are all doing along with our colleagues, is that I think there's starting to be aha moments on the Hill, which makes me really excited. And I think there is room to figure out what the path can be to move forward on this that ensures that voters with disabilities have the same right and to ensure that it's not forgotten and overlooked. Um, so that's what we're currently doing to educate policymakers and their teams to let them know this is what can happen and providing recommendations on what we need to do to move forward on this. So that's kind of where we've been. And we've also told them that we're excited for a lot of the other provisions that are in the bill, because not only does it help voters with disabilities, but it has helps everyone, which is really exciting. Anything from modera- modernizing modernizing, that's a word, right? Modernizing, that's the word. (laughs) Voter registration to ending voter intimidation. Those are all such important things that we should all want to make sure that 
it doesn't happen. No voter should be intimidated and it should be easier to register to vote. There's no question that we all want to see that, but we also just need to be mindful of uh, maybe some unintended consequences of something like the paper ballot mandate. And Erica, as you mentioned, we are all engaged with the House Administration Committee, the Senate Rules Committee, and members of the House and Senate trying to educate them on the, the provisions of these this, these bills and their impact on voters with disabilities. We've been doing this as part of the National Coalition on Accessible Voting. And this week we had a, a joint policy statement from this coalition regarding S-1 and the For the People Act. Um, and I'd like to jump into some of the recommendations that we had for members of Congress to improve these bills. Um, so we've We've been talking about this durable paper ballot mandate, and first and foremost, the recommendation we have is to provide uh, a carve-out for voters with disabilities, as well as UACAVA or uniformed military and overseas citizens, um, so that they are able to complete and return their ballot electronically. Um, Diane, is this <laughs> is this a good suggestion? Does this help uh, move the move the ball forward on this legislation? Uh, the short answer is yes. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that this is not the first time this uh, carve-out kind of uh, idea has come up. And in working on the Technical Guidelines Development Committee for a um, decade plus now, um, the discussion you know, came up there years ago. And I personally was always reluctant to... Uh, for lack of a better word, to do the special, you know, set aside kind of thing. Uh, just because, you know, in my heart of hearts, I, I know things are better when you have universal design and people are using the same thing and people with disabilities are integrated, not segregated and all of that. So, you know, so it was, let me put it this way, it would, would not be my first line solution. <laughs> but given uh, the situation we're in and the, the two decades of conflict between security advocates and accessibility advocates and, and uh, us not being able to find a middle ground and come to some sort of, of you know, agreement, uh, absolutely. Uh, this this carve, carve out or uh, basically saying the, this global paper ballot mandate does not apply when people with disabilities need accessibility or when military overseas voters must have a digital ballot or else they are not going to be able to vote because they're in the middle of a war zone and you can't get a piece of paper to them, nor can you get a piece of paper out of the war zone and back to their voting jurisdiction in time to actually, you know, have their ballot count. So, yes, it, it seems to me to be a reasonable compromise given the current situation we're in. And Diane, another a suggestion that we have to improve this bill is a uh, basically a, a sunset or to require that the um, the paper ballot mandate be reauthorized in six years. Um, I think that's seen as a way to kind of get past the, like you were saying with the carve out, get past the current situation um, so that in the future, as technology continues to evolve and innovations are made, that we can have a more secure and accessible system for everyone to use. Is that your understanding as well? Yes. Uh, it, it, and it buys a period of time. Uh, another provision you'll probably get to in uh, both bills looks a little different, uh, S1 and, or HR1 and S1, um, is some, some funding for uh, research and development pilots so that, you know, if the security people are going to continue to pat us on the head and say we can make paper accessible, then by golly, let's do it. Let's invest the federal money and, and show me this fully accessible ballot marking device that provides good accessible verification and paper handling casting so that someone does not have to manually handle the paper ballot nor, um, you know, be able to visually see the print on the paper to verify it. You know, let's let's put the money behind actually solving these problems, at least for in voting, uh, in-person voting. And something that you touched on earlier, Diane, was that currently... Uh, the definitions of voting systems only apply to in-person voting. Um, and a, another provision that we're recommending is the inclusion of remote absentee voting 
in the definition of a voting system. Why is that important? Um, that would uh, authorize, allow the Technical Guidelines Development Committee to begin the process of setting standards for remote voting systems. Right now, the voluntary uh, voting system guidelines that has all the security requirements and the accessibility requirements only apply to systems that are used for in-person voting. And so there really are no standards. There's no um, requirements for uh, remote voting systems to, to comply with any set of security standards or accessibility standards. So given assuming that many jurisdictions continue to move that direction. Many jurisdictions are all male vote now, and they keep, it appears that's a trend outside the pandemic, obviously moving everybody that direction. It seems it was a move generally anyway um, that would give the Election Assistance Commission and the Technical Guidelines Development Committee the authority to actually develop standards um, for those remote voting systems. And Erica, uh, due to the advocacy of NDRN and others, we've seen, I believe it's in the in the House bill, the inclusion of language that would change the requirement of at least one uh, accessible ballot marking device for in-person voting to a, a sufficient number, as well as dollars for research into accessible voting. Uh, can you share with us a little bit on why those provisions are important? Or, or reiterate to us why those provisions are important for inclusion in S1 as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I'll start with the sufficient ballot marking devices and voting machines at polling places. I mean, that goes back to the beginning of our conversation today, right? How Diane mentioned that there's only one currently at polling places because that's what's in federal law under the Health America Vote Act. But hopefully the goal with tweaking the language here is that there will be more than one. Um, and I think for some polling places, perhaps one's in my opinion, it's not, but I, I realize I'm biased here. I think there should always be more than one. But in smaller counties or jurisdictions, maybe one is appropriate under the belief of um, election officials who know their county, right? But if you think of large polling places or vote centers that have thousands of voters coming in. The fact that currently under federal law, they have to have one is just mind boggling to me. So we're hoping that that type of tweaking in the legislation will encourage election officials and folks to have more than one, depending the size um, and area of their jurisdiction and polling place. And I think for any folks that say, well, we don't need one in general because we don't have voters with disabilities in our county. That's not accurate. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, and then in turn, so it's really exciting that we can hopefully see a change and more folks using the polling places with accessible voting machines. I know I asked all my friends very politely to use the machines because uh, I think that's excellent. Um, and I think on the research and development, that's huge too. Because right now, as we've talked about during this conversation, there is no accessible voting machine that is ready and market available for voters to use that is in fact, allows for privacy and independency to a voter to I always mess up this order here to mark, verify, and cast their ballot. And that's really important that we have research and development to go into that. And I think if I can just add to what Diane said, she covered everything. And I think for us, we never know what type of technology is going to be created. Is it fair for us to say 20 years ago that we have a computer in our pocket now with our phones 24-7 and we do all the things on our phones and you can almost drive car self-driving-ish. I don't know enough about cars to be able to provide that, but I've seen they can let you parallel park all of these things that I don't think 10, 20 years ago we would think is possible. And that's why research and development needs to be focused on this. And I think that's really exciting. And we're optimistic that this will be included in important legislation like this, along with the reauthorization that Diane mentioned, because what if in six years, new equipment has been created and we don't need a paper ballot mandate. That's why all of these recommendations that all of you on this podcast have worked so hard on shaping, they're so essential and they really go hand in hand with the end goal to just ensure voters with disabilities have the same rights as everyone else. 
and Maggie, as we wrap up this podcast and we share the policy paper from the National Coalition on Accessible Voting and these recommendations for HR1 and S1, the For the People Act, what recommendations do you have for our listeners, our members, individuals uh, with disabilities who have either gained access to accessible means of voting or who may lose access due to some of these provisions in these bills. What recommendations do you have for them? Sure. Um, I think I have a couple of recommendations. The first of which is, you know, engage your local affiliate in a conversation about this. Um, take a look at the bill itself is, is overwhelmingly large, but, um, you know, our position statement um, talks about some of the primary issues in it. So take a look at that and, um, you know, Call your senators, call your congresspeople. Um, we need to humanize this and, and really explain to them how it impacts people when they can't vote privately and independently. Um, in conversations that we've had with uh, staff on the Hill, you know, that was one of their primary questions. Can you explain how a paper ballot's not accessible? We don't we don't really understand. Um, and so those human stories are are critical. So call your congresspeople, call your um, senators. If your affiliate wants to write, you know, their own position statement and, and send it, that would be powerful. Um, the second thing is in addition to this federal legislation, you know, pay attention to what's going through your state house. Um, many states have many bills um, about voting rights and voting access right now. And as Erica talked about earlier, you know, S1 doesn't just discuss voters with disabilities. It's a broad voting rights bill that has a lot of very good and critical improvements to voting access. Um, at the same time, there are bills going through the states that are trying to roll back the rights of, of all voters. And unfortunately, there's a lot of voter suppression bills essentially going through right now. And those bills that may not say, you know, Disability Voting Rights Act or something so obvious um, may still have provisions in them that really impact voters with disabilities, um, voters of color, voters um, who live in poverty, and they're all members of our community too. And so I just think even though the November election is over, um, we should not take our eye off of voting rights. That's a great point, Maggie. Yeah, there's um, there are many elections occurring outside of presidential elections, congressional midterm elections. Uh, there are elections for governors, for state delegates and senators, all the way down to you know, county commissioner, school board, dog catcher. There's, in a lot of jurisdictions, there are elections that are happening year round, not just on a, a two or four year cycle. And it's important for voters with disabilities and all voters to have their voices heard and their votes counted in every election that's taking place. Uh, so like Maggie said, there there are a lot of voting rights bills out there. There are many states looking at what was done in West Virginia, Maine, Massachusetts, Delaware, and North Carolina. And there are many advocates working with their states to implement something similar, uh, whether that's our very active advocates in North Dakota, Illinois, Virginia, uh, New York, Rhode Island, just to name a few um, that are that are trying to move forward on on these issues and that are are engaged and are active. Um, so if if you want to become involved, please get in touch with your local chapter, your state affiliate, uh, your state protection and advocacy organization uh, to work on voting rights and disability voting access initiatives. Uh, and also, thanks for listening to this podcast, but also please check out this policy statement to get a better understanding of how the For the People Act could impact the local advocacy work that's happening in your states. Now, we want to ensure that everyone has access to the polls and can do so privately and independently. And that's the work that the American Council of the Blind and the National Coalition on Accessible Voting will continue to do you know, here throughout 2021. And I'm guessing beyond the way that things have been going. You know, Diane, you said you've been working in you know, voting since HAVA and accessible technology for 40 years. So I'm, I'm guessing this issue isn't going to be solved anytime soon, but we can continue to build on the progress that we've made. So Diane Golden, 
Erica Hudson and Maggie Hart, thank you so much for joining ACB on the advocacy update for this very important conversation. Uh, we certainly appreciate your expertise and your collaboration. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yes, thanks very much. Yes, thank you all so much. And folks, stay tuned. There, there will certainly be more news and more work to come on voting. So as we always say, keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.